This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a fantastic show today. We've got a lot to cover as usual. There's a lot of um, breaking and important news going on right now. We're not going to get to everything today, but we continue to be reporting and broadcasting Arab Talk from our remote locations in Northern California. Pandemic, from many perspectives, Jamal, continues unabated and continues to get worse. We've had 200, over 200,000 Americans who have perished. Over 6 million people are infected, and there's no sign of it letting up anytime soon in the middle of flu season. On top of that, we had the untimely death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which if there's time, I have quite a bit to say about that. But more importantly, Jamal, we're entering an era of rather significant internet censorship happening yet again in the 21st century, censorship of pro-Palestine speech, pro-Palestine narratives yet again are being hammered, not only by pro-Israel forces within the United States and the Israeli Hasbara, Jamal, but social media giants have jumped on the bandwagon censoring free speech in this country. It's quite a time. It is a quite a time, and it's actually a very bad time for the First Amendment, academic freedom. And this is a time just when everyone, as you know, because of the pandemic, you and I are speaking, you know, remotely. Uh, all uh, teaching is happening on uh, Zoom and other platforms. And so more and more people are relying on these platforms. And so now it means that these giant uh, corporations are deciding what is, uh, what you, what, you, what can you say or you cannot say? Uh, who can you invite on a, a webinar and who you can't invite on a webinar? So to put this into perspective, uh, we're gonna hear from Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi. Of course, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, uh, she is uh, the director of uh, Ahmed Studies or Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas at San Francisco State University. And for our audience here, we spoke to her before her webinar. She had a scheduled webinar at San Francisco State University yesterday uh, on Wednesday. And we spoke to her before the webinar and what was the webinar about and all the attacks that were mounted to stop this webinar from happening. And of course, these giant corporations that you've mentioned succumbed to the pressure and uh, Zoom basically censored the webinar, did not carry that webinar and stopped it. Uh, So did Facebook and YouTube too different degrees here. So let's listen to Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi. There is a planned webinar. It's called A Conversation with Layla Khalid, moderated by Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi and Dr. Tomomi Kinokawa. And of course, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, uh, we've had her on the show many times. She's the director of Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies, Ahmed. And Dr. Kinokawa is uh, from the Women and Gender Studies. Uh, so this is a webinar that has been planned uh, way in advance. It, it looks like, from what I saw, 
almost a thousand people, maybe more. Oh, 1,300. 1,300 people have signed on, uh, signed on to it, and it has been causing a ruckus again on San Francisco State University. A lot of complaints from Jewish organizations, uh, Zionist organizations, trying to stop the webinar from happening, and at the same time uh, making all kinds of claims. So uh, before we delve into it, really, I want you, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, to explain to me what is this webinar about? Yes, first of all, thank you so much, Jamal, for having me on uh, Jamal and Just Show Arab Talk Radio. I'm very excited to be back. Uh, let me just uh, give a little bit of background. The webinar is called Whose Narratives? Gender Justice and Resistance, a conversation with Leila Khaled. And it's featuring Leila Khaled, the long-term Palestinian militant, feminist, and revolutionary icon, along with Roni Kasriels, who is anti-Zionist, uh, Jewish organizer, long, long-time member of the Af African National C uh, Congress in South Africa, and uh, served in ministerial positions, and also a member of the Palestine Solidarity uh, Committee Alliance in South Africa. We also have uh, Rula Abu Dahho, who is a feminist scholar activist in Palestine and also the acting director of the Institute for Women's Studies at Spirzet University, which is the first and continues to be the best and the best-rated, top-rated women's studies uh, program throughout the region. And I'm talking about throughout, whether we talk about Arab country, whether we talk about Turkey, Iran, Israel, and so on. It's the best. It's everybody knows the program. And then we also have uh, Laura Whitehorn, who is an uh, anti-Zionist Jewish uh, activist organizer who is actually co-founder of Releasing Aging People in Prison. She has served as a former prisoner who spent 14 years in prison and has been released and has been quite active and was a member actually of the first U.S. Solid prisoner solidarity delegation to Palestine that I co-organized and led in 2016 and has earned us also a lot of attacks by Zionist groups. And last but not least, Seiko Odinga. Seiko Odinga is a, a former Black Panther, a member of that Liberation Army back in the days, spent many, many years uh, in prison, around 30 years or so, and also is very active, continues to be very active in Black Liberation today in New York. So the, the, the panel is actually quite distinguished. And the reason we set the panel together, it's going to be Wednesday, tomorrow, it's going to be Wednesday on the 23rd. It is scheduled for Wednesday, the 23rd of September uh, at 12.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. And the reason for that is because we are doing it as two open classrooms by Professor uh, Tomi Kinakawa from Women and Gender Studies. She's bringing two of her classes, Women's Studies 150, which each one has 68 students, along with my Ahmed Studies classes and other classes. Now, the history for this, I think, is really important. Uh, Professor uh, Kinakawa reached out to me back in fall 2019 and asked if I would be willing. She was doing two classes around Palestinian Arab feminist issues, Muslim feminist issues, if I would be happy to come and speak in her class as a guest speaker. And she would understand if I couldn't because I was really busy. And I said, no, I would be very happy to come and speak. And she said one of the things that she wanted to assign in her class were some of my writings around uh, Layla Khaled, around the history of Palestinian women, around my work on Asata Shakur and so on, the whole question of women, militancy, gender, resistance, and so on. And so we had, we had that. We organized that in April. Uh, COVID-19 took place, so all the classes were converted to online. She asked me again, and I said, sure, I would be very happy to do it. 
So we actually had a very, very successful webinar on April 6th, which is available on Ahmed uh, Studies fake Facebook page. And uh, we showed the film, Layla Khalid Hijacker, with a question mark. And we also read the material, and we had a very, very lively discussion with students, with faculty. It's available. People can check it. As a result, and then we did also another webinar uh, uh, on, on gender, uh, queer, uh, queer justice. Uh, on two days later. So it was about gender and sexuality in Arab and Muslim communities. We both were quite excited about it. And then we decided we're going to do it this semester as well. And as you know, as, as yourself, a uh, uh, lecturer at San Francisco State in the Ahmed Studies Program, we all bring guest uh, speakers to our classes because students really benefit and learn from having live discussions. So we decided to do this the same thing again. And this time, we thought about if, rather than actually having uh, readings only and showing films, since we're doing everything online, why not actually try to get live people to participate and speak to the students? One of the reasons we were very encouraged is that Professor Kinakawa received over 15 pages of very positive evaluation from the students. The students loved it. They said they learned so much. So we thought, oh yeah, if, if, if you build on the success. So we, we, we organize this, and this is part of it. And our uh, webinar on queer justice is going to be on October 19th, actually. And this is part of the series of Ahmed uh, webinars. We've done many of them. I mean, in, in July, when we had a webinar with Angela Davis and other uh, leading black scholars, Robin Kelly, Gerald Horn, Diogor, and Beverly Gishaftal, we have now 9,000 views, 9,000 views watches. So people are very much interested and actually quite grateful, the students and the faculty, and the community are very, they're very interested in, in hearing things about topics that they don't get to hear about generally. Yeah, so, so let me clarify a couple of things. One is we're having this interview with you. This is not a promotional interview for the webinar because by the time we air this interview, the webinar would have happened. And this is not because we know that you have more people who have signed up than you planned originally for. Yeah. So yes. you're just like you have actually a lot of people, um, you know, cannot even watch it. They'll have to use uh, other, um, you know, the Ahmed page, uh, live streaming it and other things, basically as an auxiliary to that web webinar itself. So and that's can I just say something, Jamal? Actually, yeah. we have actually received, Dr. Kinekawa and I received so many requests from so many professors at so many universities asking us if they can bring in their classes. And we said, please, of course, by all means, come and bring your classes. Yeah, Yeah. so it's, a, it's, a, it's an open webinar. You have a lot of people. And I want to look at the main objection here and uh, from uh, the student Jewish group Hillel on campus. Uh, supported by multiple uh, Zionist organizations throughout, because uh, according to the uh, president of San Francisco State University, she has received hundreds, if not thousands, of emails complaining about the webinar, saying that, uh, well, Layla Khalid uh, uh, and the organization she belonged to, the PLFP, uh, is on the terror list uh, uh, of the United States. So that's basically, that's the main, uh, you know, objection. What do you say to this? Well, uh, well, first of all, this is not new. Uh, Pro-Israel groups have historically tried to silence the Palestinian voice the same way as Israel tries to erase Palestinians. Again and again and again, Israel would not be able to justify its existence unless it erases Palestinians and say there are 
this is a this is a land without people for a people without a land so the palestinian existence in its in itself is a big trouble secondly israel has failed to convince the world public opinion of sympathy and most importantly in the united states israel has really failed so we now have polls after polls of actually almost equal numbers of people sympathetic to palestine which ha we have never seen that in in, in the past and part, big part of this community is actually Jewish uh, people and including young Jews on campuses who are saying, we're really troubled by the, what Israel is doing. We don't want our name to be signed to it and so on. So the pro-Israel groups, Israel lobby groups are very, very troubled by it. So let's just keep that in mind. And they are very much, they have waged so many campaigns. Historically, myself, I've been at San Francisco State for 14 years. I have not had a chance, maybe less than a year and so on. I breathe, but then it's been the attacks continued, continued, continued against me, against other faculty, against students, against people who are a civil rights organization, civic organization, and so on. Because and within, within the, the, the elections, the presidential elections and so on, the goal is to silence the Palestinian narrative, to silence Palestinians from speaking what their minds are to let people know what's going on to connect the question of justice in for palestine with the question of justice for all and we've been actually i should say that ahmed we've been actually quite you know successful as doing this and actually connecting the whole question of the production of justice so they're very bothered with it so they pick on this and actually we did not invite Leila khalid as a member of the pflp if we wanted to have to have a, a discussion of Palestinian groups, this is not the kind of discussion we will have. This is not the kind of webinar. Um, if, if we were teaching a, a, a topic that actually addresses that, why not have all the Palestinian groups come on, on, on webinar and speak up their opinions, which is something that CNN does, which is something that Fox News does, lesser so because they're not as uh, expressive of diversity of opinion. Everybody does that. So why not on a university campus? Well, well here I want to clarify. I want to clarify also the confusion because mm -hmm. the attacks, and I've read uh, at least one of the letters um, basically sent uh, by the Jewish Community Federation to President uh, Lynn Mahoney. But the way they, uh, the narrative in it, it makes it sound as if Layla Khalid is coming to campus and hurting, you know, affecting the uh, Hillel students or the Hillel students are excluded or whatever. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is just to be clear, this is a webinar that's, uh, that's uh, because as, as you've mentioned earlier, now all education is done online, the San Francisco State University campus is, has been shut down since uh, last March, right? right? And, and all classes are converted to online classes. So all they're classes. converted, yeah, exactly. And then you've said, I think, something very important. Uh, you have interviews, um, you know, conducted by uh, CNN, by CBA, you know, all kinds of people from Afghanistan to Iraq to Palestine. And that's part of uh, the First Amendment. And then, of course, there is, uh, in, in, in your case, not only the, you know, the first, of course, the First Amendment, but also freedom uh, for academia, you know, uh, and that's what they're objecting about. Right. And I think this is also uh, the problem is that, that it, it's, first of all, I also should say that two of the, of the panelists out of the four speakers, two are actually Jewish. So it's not, I don't think they are, the, it, they're bothered of Jewish feelings are being bothered. Zionists within the Jewish community are being bothered. 
because uh, the neither university president nor the administration nor anyone else actually asked what Jewish students, other Jewish students who don't support Zionism think, what other Jewish faculty, and we have a lot of Jewish faculty at SFSU, what do they think about that? Are they bothered by it? Are they troubled by it? Nobody has bothered ask uh, community groups who are actually growing, like Jewish Voice for Peace, like many groups, uh, scholars and so on, within the Bay Area and in the U.S. and internationally, what do you think about that? And it's completely the, 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 the way, it's, it's, the same, it's the same attacks, Jamal. When Lawfare sued me, they said, oh, and she is going, she's traveling to Palestine and here and there, and she met with Leila Khalid and Sheikh Ra'il Salah, which is the same old charge that they did in 2014. And I said, I organized meetings with 198 Palestinians, including Leila Khalid and Sheikh Ra'il Salah. But it's very convenient for the Zionists to pick on a couple of people because they want to whip up the war on terror and Islamophobia. They want to whip up anti-Palestinians, and they really want to deflect attention from how exciting this webinar is. Why is it really important to think about narratives and so on? And actually, the executive director of Lawfare, I don't know if you recall, Jamal, but I, mean, I think you do, that the Lawfare uh, director herself, uh, Brooke Goldstein, actually in her video said, oh, and I met with Hamas, and I met with this, and I met with that. So why is it you're allowed to actually meet an interview, but it's not allowed for anybody else? Is this that the Palestinians are exceptionalized and Palestinian voices are well, supposed well, to be also, silent? Yeah. Let me yeah. also just remind our uh, listeners on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM and, of course, our uh, viewers on YouTube and on Facebook that uh, Hillel uh, hosted on campus the former uh, mayor of Jerusalem, Nir Barkat, who basically is a, what, uh, is a gun-touting mayor who basically was encouraging uh, Israelis to arm themselves uh, against Palestinians. Uh, yeah. And we can go on with a long list, a long list of uh, former terrorists, uh, Zionist mm. terrorists, uh, starting uh, with uh, Menachem Begin, uh, who was the leader of the Irgun terror group, Yitzhak Shamir, who was responsible for the multiple bombings and killings of civilians, and wanted, by the way, by the British government, Ariel, Ariel Sharon, the mastermind behind the Sabra and Shatila massacres, and, and many other examples who <laughs> later on uh, not only... Uh, came to the United States, but they were at the White House, at the at Congress. They received at the, the highest honors. At, at the received State the Department. So here we see the double uh, standard. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're only having a web- webinar, a discussion hosted by Ahmed, and, uh, and, uh, and, and actually you're just doing it online. Yes, and I think also, I think it's really, really important to also think about who defines what's terrorism and who does not define what's terrorism. I mean, Nelson Mandela, until 1994, was considered a terrorist. Many people who have been organized day in and day out also have been considered a terrorist. So because of the political convenience of Israel and the United States, not a single Israeli war criminal actually was brought to justice. Meanwhile, Leila Khaled, I mean, one of her claims to fame is that she hijacked two planes. Uh, back in 1969, I guess, yeah, 1969, 1970. That's, that's her claim to fame. I mean, so they, they are latching onto that. And I want to bring us up, Jamal, to the main point is that they, they have a serious problem with this. They basically are not even speaking about who are our guests, what's the purpose of it, 
what's the title, what's the content of the webinar. And the other one that we, we did in April is also available. And some of them, by the way, cited it. Amcha, I think, cited it. And other, so which means that they are fully aware of it. But the truth doesn't really matter. The truth doesn't matter when you have a lobby of a very strong government that is abusing and, uh, and, and violating rights and, and trying to get away with it and trying to present itself as exceptional, that it should be above the law and it should not be held accountable. So the deflection from what we are trying to do by trying to spotlight the light on us, because when they say that, they actually ignore the history and the fact that uh, the, right of, uh, the, the writing about Layla Khaled and writing by her and the films about her are actually on almost all women's studies classes. I mean, everybody studies that as they study other leading women talk about it sometimes you agree sometimes you don't agree not everybody agrees with the same strategies or the discourse which is okay because that's what critical knowledge is all about that's what we should be teaching our students and so they deflect and they try to actually evacuate this rich content of the classrooms to pick on one thing and continue continue attacking it and honestly my colleague and I, we decided to not uh, respond to any of the interviews. Well, I mean, I see a lot of responses. I mean, I know the community yeah. is responsing, uh, responding, and I, I feel the urge also to, uh, you know, put the truth forward because I'm also yes. kind of surprised that after, uh, for example, the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco has been exposed in multiple articles. Most of these articles, by the way, were in Jewish publications of how they were using their, misusing their funds. And doesn't need a lot of research. People can do that, you know. And they have been using their uh, funds that people basically donate to support the, the Jewish community, to support art and whatever. But basically they were using these funds to support illegal colonial settlements on uh, stolen Palestinian land and stalking Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab sentiments all across, supporting basically far-right groups such as Canary Mission, Turning Point USA, the Tea Party Patriots, anti-gay groups such as the Heritage Foundation and Southern Poverty Law Center designated anti-Muslim groups such as Act for America and the Center for, you know, I mean, this is to name a few. The list mm. is so long, uh, Dr. Abdul Hadi. And, and Jamal, all of them by the list includes every single group that has attacked us. Yes, From I Amcha mean, and, to David Horowitz. They, believe, they yeah. believe that uh, people's memory is so short. And this mm. is, we're talking about a year, to, a year ago, two years ago. Mm. They started to get exposed, basically, through their tax returns. Right. And they've been very silent. They were making excuses of, we made a mistake supporting Canary Mission. We're going to stop giving them the $100,000 a year. But looking at that, their tax returns for 10 years, they've spent in the neighborhood of $100 million That's right. to stalk yeah. Islamophobia mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and support hate groups. Mm -hmm. and, and now, silence, and silence, academic freedom. And yes, freedom and now they're saying, you know, they're leading, they're one of the leaders of this uh, campaign, basically uh, to defame Ahmed and, and defame you personally and, and, and making excuses. Now, when I want to go into also an um, a, uh, op-ed that the president of San Francisco State 
published in the Jay Weekly on September 14th, and in it there were some positive points. Uh, um, Then the rest goes downhill in my opinion, but she said at least that she's committed to academic freedom and the ability of faculty to conduct their teaching and scholarship without censorship. I mean, that's, that's kind of the position that, she has that's, taken. That's everybody's position. That's the law. That is the law. I mean, but I'm just saying, I mean, in her thing, then, of uh-huh. course, uh, the bad thing about her article is that it was totally one-sided. It wasn't just one-sided. I mean, Jamal, the thing is, it was even worse than that. President Mahoney said to community uh, people, uh, to, com- to community groups that she is actually going to stand by Ahmed, she's going to support Ahmed, that she's going to uh, fight against Islamophobia and the Arab discrimination, and then turn around and do something completely different. She wrote an, a, a memo to the campus and said that I am against Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, anti-blackness, and that, okay, that's really great. I support academic freedom. But then she also she also jumped in and said in that memo, even before we talk about the J Weekly, she said that I abhor terrorism and violence and so on. That, but she and she also said that she talked to Hillel and she talked to other com- is, uh, Jewish community groups who are Zionist groups and so on. So we now we know that she's talked to them because they're all affirming that she has not once reached out to me, to Professor Tumomi, to any of our students. She hasn't talked to any of us again, as if we are not part of this campus. Like we're completely. The only important thing is for her to satisfy the Zionists and, and, and really pro-Israeli donors. And it's very interesting because the same, the date, the letter that's coming from the Jewish community relation to President Mahoney is dated the same day that she published her op-ed in J Weekly. The J Weekly op-ed also, curiously enough, eliminated all the discussion around Islamophobia, anti-blackness, anti-Semitism, and so on, removed it all, and only talked about, you know, this is, she's talking to only one audience. She's talking to the pro-Israel Zionist audience. That's her audience. None of us is her audience. None of the black uh, students on campus or faculty, nobody who cares about Islamophobia is talked to. But she also, when she cited uh, uh, Judge Brandeis, she said that we, this, she basically, she equated what we are doing with evil. I mean, this is the word she used. It's in her letter. And that is very, very troubling for a professor who actually specializes in history. Dr. Mahoney always says that I am a historian. I am a historian. I abhor, uh, she, she says white nationalism. She doesn't use white supremacy. I want to support black lives and so on. But then what you say, this is completely contradictory to what you claim in different places. So she has different discourses for different audiences, number one, which is actually not very good for an academic who claims to be unbiased. Uh, secondly, she's totally one-sided. Third, she has not talked to her from, uh, to her faculty. I'm not, it's not difficult to find me. It's not difficult to know who I am. She knows who I am. And I have reached out to her multiple times by myself with the students and the community has reached to her on my behalf. So it's actually quite problematic. And to me, it seems that this is part of the institutional, the institutional uh, memory and the institutional stains of San Francisco State that continues to refuse to allow us to build our program, to teach, to protect us with the same protection, equal protection. We're supposed to be equally protected under the law like everybody else. So there is a prioritizing of Zionist organizations 
because also there are the donations money, there are the pressures, because the Zionists also have the time to sit down and write 100,000 letters and so on. We don't have the resources. There, but there has been a lot of support from our community. It takes a little bit longer, always, because we're a grassroots group, you know. When uh, in a communication with Dr. Uh, uh, and President uh, Mahoney, she said that she is, her obligation, uh, obligation is to, I'm, I'm quoting, to my students, and that she always reach, will reach out to them, and uh, that she offers, uh, you know, GAPS, um, and other uh, Arab and Muslim organizations, uh, the same level of commitment and support that she gives to everyone. That's not true. I'm sorry, but that's really not accurate. With all due respect, first of all, uh, I, when President Mahoney's office reached out to me to help bring groups, actually I did ask GOBS, Muslim Student Association, Muslim Women's Student Association, and Afghan Student Association. We went met with her. The students presented her with a lot of concerns. Not a single concern that they have raised has been addressed now. She has not reached out to GOPS. She has not reached out to me. It's also, by the way, a problem to say I'm only going to reach out to students and only not to reach out to the community and to the faculty as well because she's doing that also elsewhere. And so she has not reached out to them. Actually, GOPS and the uh, Students for Justice in Palestine elsewhere have organized a petition and sent the petition that garnered over 1,000 people within like less than three days they sent to President Mahoney. President Mahoney has not responded to them, has not even gave, give, given them a response. Students have invited her last year to attend the mural, the Palestinian mural event. She said, sorry, I'm not available. Students, uh, Muslim students invited her to come to their annual. She has not. She has not in, uh, attended a single event for any of the Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian students. Meanwhile, she also announced that she has been breaking bread with Zionist schools, by the way, she's not talking to anti-Zionist Jewish students, only Zionist students. She's breaking bread with Hillel. She meets with them and she said on Shabbat, because it's also quoted in some of the Zionist organizations. So even if you want to look at it on the face of it, you don't even want to get critically discussion with it in, as an intellectual. Even on the face of it, there is totally, totally disparate treatment. There is totally different ways of treating our communities, than the way she is actually treating the Zionist wing of the Jewish community, not the whole Jewish community, I want to emphasize, the Zionist wing of that, which is quite offensive to us, Arabs, Muslims, and Palestinians, the study of Arab Muslims and Palestinians, as well as the study of Jewish studies that is not Zionist, and our Jewish sisters and brothers in the community. It's offensive to all of us because we're all excluded, and the only groups that she's catering to a meeting with, and and doing a lot of outreach and, and deference to and so on, are the pro-Israel Zionists. And I think this is quite shameful, actually, today's an age, because we know what Israel is doing in Palestine and how many human rights violations, international laws that are, are, are violated day in and day out. So that's, that's actually quite trouble, troubling, especially for a, for a scholar of history who should really know history. We have a couple of minutes, and in these two minutes, I want to go back to the web webinar. What do you think people, uh, what do you, what, what's your expectations or what? Uh, what I'm very people, excited. What do you think, do you think people are going to get out of it? I'm very, very excited because we actually have prepared a lot of readings. We have prepared a lot of videos. We are sharing a lot of resources for it to be able to have discussions. I really want us to think about how is history told and retold? What kind, how critical can we come up with different narratives and think about it? 
What does gender and justice and resistance have to do with it? How do they play out elsewhere? What does it mean, for example, when people say, where is your Mandela? I want to uh, pose that question to Rani Kasril and see about that. What's happening with Palestinian women's studies? These are the, the things that we're expecting. And I think this is why, Jamal, we have so much response. We have so much response. We have so much support. People are cannot wait for it to happen. And we're really happy to be able to provide this kind of service. Our, it's our uh, you know, responsibility to share it with our community, with our students, with our faculty, and I'm saying our all over the world, and have it become something that people can always go back to and use as a resource. That's our job as educators, and that's what we're doing. Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, the director of Ahmed, uh, thank you again for coming on Arab Talk and hope to talk to you very soon. Thank you so much for having me, Jamal. Well, that's the voice of uh, Professor Rabab Abdelhadi, uh, co-founder and director of the Ahmed program at San Francisco State, talking about her webinar. Now, Jamal, it's important you did this interview with Professor Abdelhadi before the decision to censor her webinar. And just to put it in context, you know, this is not uh, just craziness on the internet that there's quite a bit of, which gets posted all the time. This is a legitimate academic webinar done in the context of learning and education. And we have in this country white supremacists and hate groups all the time spewing absolute condemnable um, hate speech uh, all the time on Zoom, on Twitter, on Facebook Live, on all of these platforms. Yet, and we, we see that Professor Abdulhadi's webinar, in fact, got censored a, a, in an mm. academic context. It's truly well. Listen, outrageous. I mean, I mean, we can get into the details because the, uh, in the in the in the uh, discussion with Dr. Rabab Abdulhadi, she talks about it. But also, you know, this is important to point out the double standard. Yes, when it comes to who gets censored and who who doesn't, uh, who's who doesn't, and also who goes on the uh, U.S. terror list and who doesn't. I mean, I mean, it's kind of like ironic that uh, most or uh, several leaders from the Israeli government who were hosted at the White House at the State Department, at Congress, they were on the terror list, on the British terror list, like it's Haq Shamir, Menachem Begin. It's Haq Shamir is notorious for the bombing of the King David Hotel, which killed like more than 80 people and injured hundreds. And so, you know, and of course, it's a reminder that also uh, up till the early 90s, Nelson Mandela was also on the terror list of the State Department. He was banned to come to address the United Nations uh, uh, under the Reagan administration. They wouldn't give him a visa, you know. And, and, and then later on, he's a hero. So I'm not going to get into all these, but also we've had a very important uh, discussion uh, with Gillian uh, York, right. uh, Director uh, for the Internet Freedom of Expression at the uh, Electronic uh, Frontier uh, Foundation, EFF. Right. Let's also uh, listen to Gillian. Joining Arab Talk from Berlin, Gillian C. York. Gillian is Electronic Frontier Foundation Director for International Freedom of Expression and is based in Berlin, Germany. Her work examines state and corporate censorship and its impact on culture and human rights with an emphasis on marginalized communities. 
at EFF. She leads onlinecensorship.org and works on platform censorship and accountability, state censorship, the impact of sanctions, and digital security. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Jillian. Thank you for having me again. It's good to see you. As uh, you are aware of, on Wednesday, Zoom, YouTube, and Facebook have all censored a webinar co-moderated by two professors at San Francisco State University, Professor Rabab Abdelhadi, Director of the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Program, and Professor Tomomi Kinukawa from the Department of Women and Gender Studies. And uh, this webinar uh, was called Whose Narratives, Gender, uh, Justice, and Resistance. In your line of work, has this happened before? Especially since now, uh, with the pandemic, uh, students, academics, journalists, and so on, are more and more dependent on these platforms. Yes. Yeah, so this is something that we see happen quite often. Um, and I, I want to give just like a quick background here. Um, so there's a little bit of a misconception that we saw happen this week and that I've seen in a number of other cases that it's illegal um, to host anyone who might be affiliated with a U.S. designated terrorist organization. Um, that from, and again, I should say that I'm not a lawyer, but I work with a lot of First Amendment lawyers and I've done a lot of research on this subject. And the consensus among those folks, those lawyers, is that it is not illegal when there's not money changing hands, that simply hosting the speech of such an individual um, who, who has that affiliation isn't against the law. So first of all, it's a choice when platforms make that decision, um, even though they sometimes do imply that there's a legal obligation there. Now, in this case, there's some details that I'm sure we'll get into around Zoom and what their terms of service actually say. But what I see on a regular basis is platforms taking down speech of individuals who are affiliated with, but also individuals who are criticizing, engaging in counter speech, um, parodying, engaging in satire uh, around groups that the U.S. government has decided are terrorist organizations. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty common phenomenon. Yeah, so uh, you've mentioned, I mean, I want to see the distinction between uh, the law, right? And you said you've, you've uh, had discussions with several lawyers and they said this is not illegal. And then you've mentioned, you know, that's reference always the TOS, uh, the term of, uh, term of service, terms of service, which basically, I mean, Zoom is a private company and can decide, uh, well, now it's a public tra publicly traded company. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I mean, those are giant platforms. I mean, imagine between the three of these, Zoom, Facebook, and Twitter, they really can determine now what uh, our First Amendment can look like. Exactly. And, and if you look at Facebook, I mean, I'm not sure about Zoom's numbers, but if you look at Facebook, the majority of users are not in the U.S., so if we trust the First Amendment lawyers who say that this is not the law, that it's not a requirement, and we, we say, okay, companies have the right to decide who they want on their platforms and who they don't want, what we see in practice is that it's often some of the most marginalized communities in the world who have their, their content, their pictures, their speech removed, um, and then it's some of the more powerful individuals, some of the more right now, it's the, the right-wing individuals who often are not censored, and this 
from my perspective, has a lot to do with whoever's in power in government at the time. So you've got a couple different things at play. You have the fact that we've given companies this much power to make decisions about our speech, but then you also have the fact that Silicon Valley is increasingly in line with the powerful, um, and that includes governments like the United States, France, Germany, Israel, and so on. Yeah, so that's exactly, I mean, I mean, f- from what at least I've been reading, seeing, hearing, a lot of powerful organizations, even people say that the Israeli government has interceded, uh, especially with, with Facebook, and it has done that in, in the past. Now, you and I go long time <laughs> and uh, have traveled. You know, we've seen things like this happening, and, we, and people were very critical uh, during the so-called Arab Spring in Egypt that uh, the government turned off the internet, like or throttled the internet and uh, issues like this in other countries, uh, Syria and so forth. I mean, are we getting to this point now? So if we can say, well, we don't have government censorship in the United States, but now we have corporate censorship and, and, and the corporation is now, or corporations are larger even than the government itself that Donald Trump is dependent on Twitter uh, or, and Facebook and whatever that, that, that they use. I mean, they're all kind of look to me like both of the same. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating, right? Because on the one hand, you have smaller, more marginalized nations. Let's use Palestine as an example here, where I don't think Palestinians have much power to fight back against these companies. I mean, not only because you do have agreements between Facebook and the Israeli government, for instance, but also because historically we see a lot of Palestinian speech being marginalized anyway on campus, um, everywhere, in newspapers, etc. But then on the other side, you see companies like Twitter trying to hold Donald Trump accountable, um, you know, by taking down some of his tweets. And, and sure, we might agree with that. I mean, I think that there's a lot of complexity to these decisions right now that, you know, perhaps an absolutist free speech take isn't always the right one. But at the same time, um, I think we've kind of gotten ourselves into a bind here where the blur, the lines between government and company are blurred um, in both directions. And I find that really troubling for the future of free speech. So what is uh, Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation is doing about this, really? I mean, you are basically an advocate uh, for the First Amendment. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think it's important to note for the, for the viewers that, you know, the First Amendment doesn't apply to what's said on, corp- on corporate platforms. And so we don't take that approach necessarily to Facebook, right? But we're still free speech maximalists, even when, you know, we look and say these companies can do whatever they want on their own spaces. Um, and so what it really comes down to for me is, I mean, sure, yes, there are policies that we consult on, we advocate about publicly. Um, I think you know that for a long time, I've been against Facebook's real names policy, because I think that it's damaging to activists. Um, but we can't completely roll back the fact that these companies have this power. And so one of the things that we've been really focused on in the past couple of years is ensuring that platforms are transparent about the decisions they make, not just to the public through their transparency reporting, but also directly to users. Um, So a lot of times users will get, you know, very little notification, their accounts will be removed permanently. Um, You know, they just, they don't always know that they're even breaking the rules and that gets even more complex in certain languages outside of these companies' expertise. And then the third thing, and this one I I can't uh, overstate enough the importance of, is uh, appeals, the right to remedy, due process. Um, You know, a lot of these decisions are made in error. Humans and machines are both 
uh, fallible. And so we have to make sure that every user has the opportunity to go back to the company and say, hey, I think you made the wrong decision here. Let's, you know, let's look at it, look at it again. I mean, what recourse do people have? Uh, I mean, I know you worked very hard in uh, many organizations to make sure that marginalized voices are heard and the lines of communications are kept open and, and, and several organizations put these uh, uh, tutorials about uh, internet <coughs> circumvention tools and, and mm-hmm. so forth. But now <coughs> you have these companies are the ultimate arbitrators for, for free speech. So when, uh, um, you know, the marginalized, when I have put something out there and they know they are, they risk being shut down, what tools are available to them to not basically being taken off the air? Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, I think that, you know, one thing that I that I always tell activists and really anyone um, is that we shouldn't rely on these major corporate platforms for our speech. Um, EFF's perspective has been uh, to take a, a different view towards essential internet infrastructure as compared to social media and communications platforms. And so while we're, you know, while we accept the idea that Facebook can decide what they want to host. We don't necessarily take that view when it comes to um, web hosts, for example, the, the folks that sell you your, your URL and host your website. And so that's an area you know, where I would advise people to look towards um, less central parts of the internet to host their content. I think it's also really important to look at what country um, your speech is being hosted in. The U.S. isn't necessarily the best place for a number of reasons. It may have used to been, but now you know, I, would, I would take more of a look towards Europe for some of this. Um, and then I think the other thing too, is that, you know, we, while I'm not (laughs) right now, given the political situation, I don't have a lot of faith in the regulatory environment in the U S changing in any positive way, but I do think that it's time that we look at Europe for this. I mean, we saw the GDPR come out of Europe a couple years ago. Now we've got the digital services act coming up. I mean, there's certainly troubling legislation ahead as well. Terrorism regulation, copyright, uh, directive, But at the same time, I think that there's a real opportunity here to work with European lawmakers to make sure that that um, users have more rights. This is really interesting because (laughs) I remember the days when the U.S. was crying foul for like uh, Iran, uh, you know, not giving people access to Facebook and Facebook. The same thing. They were also crying about this, that they were blocked in countries like Iran. And now we have to worry about you're saying that the U.S. is not the best place to, to host your content or, or to use these platforms. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's changed quite a lot over the years, right? I, I've just finished a book that's coming out in March um, called Silicon Values that looks at a lot of this. And one of the things that I realized working through it was that back when I started doing this work, and I think when I first met you, um, Facebook and and other platforms, but especially Facebook, actually worked really hard, or let's say individuals within inside Facebook, I wouldn't actually credit Mark Zuckerberg with this, but they worked really hard to make sure that activists stayed online. Um, There's a whole, you know, kind of behind the scenes story about how they made sure that the page in Egypt, we are Al Khan Said, was able to stay up, um, even though it had been taken down for violating the rules. And so that changed over the years. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, political ambition on the part of some of those folks at the companies, but also things like the rise of the Islamic State, uh, harassment, the alt-right. Um, what I, from my perspective, I would say that a lot of these companies have closed ranks and really stopped, stopped seeing themselves as part of the world and more as uh, you know, profit-making mechanisms. 
Yeah, what about the argument uh, uh, that's put forward that Facebook, like uh, the old uh, AT&T and whatever, uh, or I mean, yeah, they should be broken down to several companies. They've just gotten too too big for basically, you know, for this kind of control and this kind of power. Yeah, I mean, I definitely worry about that. And I think, you know, I, I'm, that's, it's not something I work on directly. So I'm a little worried about misrepresenting EFF's position, but we do have a whole team that works on competition. Um, and it is something that we favor. We'd like to see more platforms. We'd like to see a more diverse range of places for speech online. At the same time, I think that it's not a silver bullet for solving these problems. And I don't think that it's going to magically create a better environment for speech. Um, the way that I see it is we have to look at this holistically from the legal side from, you know, and that includes competition, regulation, uh, and, and fighting back against bad laws. Um, we have to look at it from public education. We have to look at it from tackling some of these issues at the root. Um, you know, I mean, I think that when it comes to what happened this week with Zoom, Part of the problem is that Silicon Valley lawyers seem to not know any better than to just follow blindly whatever the State Department says about who's a terrorist. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to state an opinion one way or the other about Leda Khaled, but I, we see this all the time where Muslims and Arabs in particular just get labeled a certain way by the U.S. government, which I should note is not in line with what the EU and the, e and the UN uh, say in every case. Um, and the U.S. the U.S. definition is very politicized. And I'm just not sure that Silicon Valley realizes that. Um, and so I think that that's an important thing to remember as well, that this is, you know, kind of a, a group of companies that are really working in a, in a bubble or in a vacuum um, and not necessarily seeing the way the rest of the world both sees and is affected by these decisions. What about hate speech? I mean, Facebook and other platforms, they claim that they're trying to clean their act when it comes to hate speech. But uh, for Palestinian activists, uh, they seem to feel that they're getting the brunt uh, out of this, mm -hmm. that their content is being removed. So uh, it looks like it's been very selective. I mean, have you noticed this? I mean, is there uh, keywords that people use, like whenever you have an uh, a post about Palestine, use the word Palestine or something like this, then all of a sudden uh, that post gets throttled and, and, and maybe even removed. Yeah, there have been so many, you know, kind of mysterious situations um, with Palestinian speech on these platforms over the years. I mean, one of the very first examples that I had was trying to create a page with the word Palestinian in it, and it wouldn't let me. And, you know, Facebook eventually said, oh, it's a bug, um, which is what they always say. But when it comes to uh, hate speech and Palestine, there's an excellent report, I'm sure you're aware of it, but from Hamle, um, a group based in Haifa, and they saw really like a, a strong difference with how Palestinian, you know, real, real hate speech by the rules, how Palestinian hate speech was almost always taken down, but Israeli hate speech was allowed to stay up. And I think that, you know, we, we reasonable people can disagree on what constitutes hate speech. I mean, really the world has never quite agreed on this, right? Reasonable people can disagree on what constitutes hate speech or how much of it should be removed. But what we all need to be thinking about is the holistic approach to this and how the bias that comes into it um, from, from every angle. I mean, there's always going to be bias when dealing with hate speech. And so we need to be clear about how we define it. And we need to be proportionate and balanced in how we apply it, how we apply any rules about it. Jillian, I want to thank you again for coming on Arab Talk, and we hope to talk to you very soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
That's the voice of Jillian York, the uh, executive director of the EFF, Electronic Freedom Foundation. And Jamal, she's, Foundation. Yeah, she's, uh, she's spot on. I mean, we're seeing a, an emergence uh, of corporate mega uh, platforms, these, these social media platforms being the arbiters now of what gets posted and what doesn't. And it's a very frightening development now, especially when it comes to academic freedom. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Again, who determines who gets on and who doesn't? And this is part and parcel of this whole uh, movement now. You have giant uh, corporations like Facebook and others. And by the way, you know, when we talk about these corporations, their reach is not limited to the United States. It's worldwide. So the decisions, right. the decisions that are being made in Silicon Valley affect people in Europe, affect people in the Middle East, affect people in Africa, all over the world. So that kind of, you know, begs the question uh, is like, do you need uh, more platforms, right? Or, or uh, I, some people suggested that, uh, you know, corporations like uh, Facebook are too big and they should be, you know, kind of uh, broken into several but, ones and but, so forth because of that monopoly. Right. But Jamal, shouldn't we just call it what it is? We had the pro-Israel lobby yet again exercising its power and control not just in a limited sense in the academy, which they have been trying to do for decades, but now they're exerting their power on these uh, mega uh, social media corporations in Silicon Valley and San Francisco. So the reach of the Israeli Hasbara is wide, it's deep, and it's far-reaching, and we're seeing the implications of it uh, today. It's not just the Israeli lobby. I think also there is intervention direct intervention, and we know that for a fact from previous instances with the Israeli government itself, right? basically, and now it's opening the doors for other governments uh, if they don't like something, if they don't like dissent, and, you know, they can complain about this. And it's very ironic that these platforms like Facebook, uh, you know, they've complained when they were basically shut down from Iran, uh, you know, Right. Uh, during demonstrations and uh, also when they were throttled in Egypt and wherever. But meanwhile, now they're doing that work themselves because uh, initially they said we want to give, uh, you know, basically a platform, you know, for people to exchange ideas and whatever. And I understand the issues around hate speech, whatever. This is an educational webinar. This is a not in any capacity. And, and we should mention this involved other participants, not just uh, Leila Khalid, but others. Uh, and yet uh, they've managed to do this. I think this uh, will be challenged. You know, you and I are not lawyers. Uh, but, but it I will think, be challenged. I think this poses a big question. And, and it's actually a scary question about our First Amendment, freedom of speech, academic freedom, that if constitutional lawyers don't take action, there will be more than the, uh, more of this. Right. And 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 my conversation with uh, Gillian York, and she said actually, uh, if people want to do something like this, they should use uh, host these uh, events in Europe because there is more freedom, freedom when it right. when it comes to this. And here, the United States like to kind of lead the world and say that this is where democracy, and again, 
<laughs> I mean, we don't even have enough time uh, to talk about this because this is an important topic about, for example, if you, maybe in a couple of minutes, just your thoughts about President Trump uh, when asked about if he leaves, if he if he loses, would he leave the White House peacefully? Well, yeah, listen. And, we've and he dodged that question. He's, yes. he's dodging the question. He's setting the stage, Jamal, with all of his criticism of voting, mail-in voting, not trusting the mail-in votes for Democrats. He trusts it for Republicans, but not for Democrats. Basically, what we're seeing, Jamal, is a showdown that is being set up for if Trump loses the election and loses on November 4th, you're going to see a, a two-month battle towards Inauguration Day, and the likelihood just went up dramatically of a real possibility that he will not leave office peacefully. That's the setup. It's something that I've talked about a long time ago, and uh, it's coming to fruition. And I think it's coming to fruition, Jamal, primarily because he sees the writing on the wall, even though I don't, I still think he has better than a 50-50 chance. Before we leave, Jamal, we have to say something about RBG. We're going to talk about this more next week. Ruth Gator, Bader Binsburg, you know, passed away. She was lauded as a giant for social justice and for equal rights around women. It's important to note that her fight for justice for women was very exclusive to primarily white women. It didn't extend to women of color. It didn't extend to Palestinian women. She was completely silent on Israeli apartheid practices and the racism of the Israeli government against Palestinians. We'll be talking about more about that next week on Arab Talk. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. You go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, and you can download all of our previous episodes. We'll see you next week. See you next week.